I'll be reading verses 1 through 8 of Mark chapter 9. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it is coming with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. In uh, certain corners of Christianity that uh, places a high emphasis on spiritual experiences, there's this idea of having a mountaintop experience. Uh, So I have entitled this series uh, as the Mountaintop Experience because this is the mountaintop experience that trumps all other mountaintop experiences we can have in this world. And unlike most, uh, this has little to do with how I feel about myself and it has more to do with seeing Jesus because that is the end of all things, isn't it? This is where we are heading to. This occasion points forward to that moment when we will see Him. In our Christian pilgrimage, we are on our way up to the high mountain of New Jerusalem to see Jesus. Because this is the first reference to not only His resurrection, but also to Christ's return. Unfortunately, many of us today have lost sight of this reality. Uh, Much of Christianity has embraced and and practiced moralism. Moralism is Christianity that overemphasizes practice at the expense of the knowledge of Jesus Christ, at the expense of the historic teaching of what we call the beatific vision. That is the day when we will see God. Moralism is another form of legalism. And it is Christianity disconnected from Christ. And it is only concerned with outcomes. It's only concerned with using Christianity as a tool to fix my life or maybe to fix society's problems. It is more concerned with changing this world rather than looking forward to the radical change that awaits us in the new world. In moralism, there is another agenda besides seeing Jesus. Uh, There is that old saying, and I I think it's uh, an attack on Presbyterians, uh, that says, you can be so heavenly minded that you serve no earthly good. But you can also be so earthly-minded 
that you forget that this world is not your home. This is what we are to come to terms with when we come to the transfiguration of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that we have a supernatural religion. It's not so much about Christians being good people, believing and practicing the Beatitudes or the Golden Rule. Uh, Yes, that is part of discipleship, as we will see. But these are not ends in themselves. Discipleship begins with our confession and leads to -to face-to-face communion with God. We're not here just for the sake of making a Mr. Rogers type of neighborhood. We are looking forward to something other than this world. We are looking forward to when we will see Jesus face to face. For the individual Christian, our spiritual understanding bears fruit with a confession. As Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But we will spend the rest of our lives trying to understand this simple confession. Uh, The same process we saw with Peter. Peter confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But he didn't quite understand what that meant at the time. His confession was divine. It came from God. He was a true Christian. But it was going to take some time spiritually for him to understand what what it meant. And he will be in for quite a shock. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up a high mountain believed to be Mount Tabor, slightly southwest of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Again, this was to remind us that God meets with his people in elevated places to reveal himself and his favor towards the one who he meets with. He created and placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which was believed to be an elevated place, a hill or a mountain. It was to be a temple devoted to God. In fact, the temple will later be designed to reflect the Garden of Eden. But then Adam and Eve sinned against God and were cast out of the garden. And so they began their wilderness wandering in this world. Then then throughout scripture, we see this pattern of the people of God ascending up to meet with God in high places out of their wilderness wandering. He meets with Abraham on Mount Moriah when he asked him to sacrifice his son Isaac. But then God steps in and says that he would provide the sacrifice. Abraham didn't know it then, but God would provide his sacrifice on another mountain, Mount Calvary, where Jesus was offered. He meets with Moses on Mount Sinai. He meets with Solomon in Gibeon where he asks for wisdom. And it was a great high place as it says in 1 Kings chapter 3. He meets with Elijah on Mount Horeb. Well, you get the picture. And what did he bring Peter, James, and John there for? For the same reason he called up Abraham, Moses, and Elijah. And that was to reveal himself and to reveal His will. They went up the mountain to see Jesus in the form of God, and God would tell them what to write down. 
In other words, Peter, James, and John ascended the mountain to receive the same prophetic vision just like the saints of old. And they, specifically Peter and John, would later write these words down just as Moses did. And when we think of our own pilgrimage, we too are the people of God ascending forward and upward to see the Lord face to face. And there we will see the form of God in Jesus Christ. This is what they saw. So he took them up the high mountain by themselves and it says, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. There is a change in his appearance. He he goes through a metamorphosis. The veil of his flesh becomes, quote unquote, see-through. But what we need to ask is, what does this transfiguration mean? What is it evidence of? First, we'll need to answer, what does it mean for Jesus? Then we'll answer, what does it mean for sinners like Peter, James, John, and ourselves? First, it is evidence of fellowship. In Luke's account, it says that this occurred while he was praying. The glory of the Lord is often described in Scripture as a shining light. And and this glory or this shining light that is described here is often referred to in the context of fellowship. Jesus is in constant fellowship and communion with his Father. Like during his high priestly prayer, he said, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Glory and fellowship go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. This is why the evidence that Moses had fellowship or a conversation with God was that he came down from Mount Sinai and the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. And this is what was happening when they get to the top of the mountain. They see Jesus transfigured, and as Matthew puts it, his face shone like the sun with the glory of the Lord as he spent his life talking with his Father. This is so that we would remember what happened to Moses when he was speaking with God and remember the prophecy that he uttered when he said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, that is a man, uh, like a human, with a human nature, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And what does the father say here? He says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. But there is the key difference. The difference between what happened to Moses and what is happening in the transfiguration is that this glory, this shining forth of God, this fellowship with God originates in Jesus himself. The difference lies in the relationship of the father and son. See, Moses was like the moon. His face shone as just a reflection of the fellowship he had with God on Mount Sinai. But in the case of Jesus, this light irradiates from himself 
like the sun. That, that's why Matthew compared his face as shining like the sun. This light came from himself as his flesh served as a veil so that Peter, James, and John would not be fully exposed to God's glory and perish. That's why in Revelation it says the city, that is the new Jerusalem, has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is the lamp of God as much as He is the Lamb of God. God's glory naturally dwells within Him since He is not only the Son of Man, but He is also the Son of God. And the glory that they share... The fellowship they have originates in eternity before the world existed. So we can say that what they saw was the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it was light. This glory was evidence of the fellowship that the Son had with His Father. So secondly, it was evidence of who He is. It was evidence that they shared the same nature. As we read in other places such as John 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. John wrote that with the transfiguration in mind. As the author of Hebrews says long ago, at many times, And in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. It says, He is, not He he is like, but He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. As we sung earlier in the last portion of uh, the splendor of God's glory bright, it says that the Son is the image of the Father. Now, there's this thing in theology we, we call imaging. It gets really complicated. I'm not going to get too deep into it. But the Son images the Father and the Holy Spirit images the Father and the Son. There's this imaging going on. There's this relationship going on. That is why we call the Father the Father and the Son the Son and the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit. And there's this other word in theology and I promise I won't test you or ask you to remember. uh, But it is this word called perichoresis. It is speaking of the inseparability of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is speaking of the unity of the Trinity. It is referring to the inherent fellowship or the natural fellowship that they share with one another. 
It is speaking of how they exist in one another. They live in one another. You cannot separate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Where the Father is, the Son and the Holy Spirit is there. Where the Son is, the Father and the Holy Spirit is there. Where the Holy Spirit is, the Father and the Son is there. Uh, That is why uh, Jesus says, the Father is working, so the Son is working. Wherever the Father works, the Son is working. They inherently exist in one another. And as Paul says, and he confirms, yet it is one God. One God. For in Him, that is in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The glory of the Lord, His deity was radiating from Jesus and shining before them all to see. If you have ever noticed that when people are not around other people in isolation, like many have been in the last two years or so, that their whole disposition and their faces change. When people are not in relationship or fellowship with others, they can fall into deep depression. And you can see it on their faces. But as soon as we spend time with others, it can have an effect on our entire bodies. And our faces tend to have a glow. Not a glow like we see here in the text. But there is a change in our entire disposition. Now imagine uh, after Moses was speaking with God face to face. Right? And this is why it is important to visit those who are in isolation. We think of those in nursing homes as such, who are isolated and alone. Why is it that we can be changed by seeing others? Because we were made in the image of God. And we were made to reflect God. We were made for fellowship and for relationship. God is eternally in fellowship with himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we were made to live in relationships and to love. Remember, God is not only light, He is also love. Who was God loving before His creation? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in a loving fellowship. And this fellowship that He shares with His Father and the Holy Spirit shines forth from Jesus as evidence of who He is eternally. What they saw on that mountain was a vision of God, the Holy Trinity, and His glory. The same vision that is repeated throughout the Old Testament as it was given to Jacob, known as Jacob's Ladder. To Ezekiel, to Daniel, the vision of a God-man sitting on His throne. And here this was a confirmation that God is enthroned and present in Jesus Christ. This is what they saw. They saw the eternal, immutable, unchangeable divinity shine forth in a creaturely way through his flesh. This is why in the Nicene Creed we confess that Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. 
And just as there was no time that the Father was not the Father, there was no time that the Son was not the Son. What a mystery indeed. Now we must ask, what did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Well, just like David says, in your light do we see light. And John says, God is light. And in Him, there is no darkness at all. So what happens when we are exposed to that light? First, we see ourselves for who we are. As John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Which means the light of God is not in us to expose our sin to us. In this text, this realization comes in the form of Peter. Poor Peter. He gets picked on often. (laughs) Not because we're any better than Peter, but because Peter represents all of us, just like he represents all of his disciples. We see ourselves in Peter. So after they see Jesus transfigured and he was standing there talking with Moses and Elijah, Peter goes into panic mode. He, he just starts babbling. He's like any one of us if we were to see the glory of the Lord shining before us. You know, everyone's a hot shot. Up until the glory of the Lord is shining around us. He starts talking without thinking to distract from his anxiety and his nervousness. You could imagine him putting up his hand to try to block the light like when sunlight is directly hitting your eyes. And he said, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. No, really, Peter? Is that all you can say? But Peter does make a semi-decent point. He gets theological. He says, now listen, Jesus, I have an idea. Listen to this. Let us make three tents. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And let's stay for a while. Now, he's not talking about tents that we use to go camping. I think he's referring to the tent of meeting that Moses would meet God in. This was a precursor of the tabernacle or the temple. So he was thinking about making three tabernacles or Temples, one for each, so that it could contain the glory of God. And so that they wouldn't die from exposure. He was scared to death. And theologically, he got the point a little wrong, because only one of them deserved to have a tabernacle built for him. And that was Jesus. Because the tabernacle represents the place of divine presence. So also in a way, he was saying these things because he did not know what to say. So it was nonsensical. Poor Peter. Poor Peter. And I feel bad for the rest of them there. Why? Because they were terrified. They were terrified. And to make matters worse for them, a cloud overshadowed them. And in Matthew it says it was a bright cloud. Now, just like the cloud described in Exodus as it appeared as a cloud with a devouring fire within it, similar to what is going on here. 
So this reaction coming from Peter and the other two disciples is common throughout the scriptures when someone is exposed to a vision of God or to the glory of God. Like when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and his face was shining after talking with God, it says that Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. Whereas Daniel, after seeing the vision of God, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious. My thoughts and the visions of my head greatly alarmed me and my color changed. Or Ezekiel, after he saw a vision of God and was surrounded by his glory, he said there was a brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. Or remember when the angel of the Lord came to lowly shepherds to announce the birth of our Savior, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And John would experience this twice in his earthly life. This time when Jesus is transfigured and later when Jesus would take him up to see him in his glory as recorded in Revelation, he said, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Why? Because we see ourselves for who we truly are in the holy presence of God. We see ourselves as sinners, unworthy to stand in His presence. God exposes us to ourselves. We would have to confess like Isaiah does when he sees a vision of the Lord. When he says... Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And no, I don't believe that was his conversion story, by the way. This is something that Christians ought to sense in the presence of God. That's what they saw, and that is what they felt. In the light of Christ, we see our need of salvation. And this is what the Spirit does for us today. When He comes to us, and when we receive the Spirit, He reveals to us all of our faults, all of our sins. Knowing that we cannot stand in the presence of God without fear, even as Christians. And that is why it is a fearful thought to go from this world to the immediate presence of God. But the good news is, for the Christian, it shouldn't be a fearful thing. It still is, but it shouldn't. Because the presence of God has come to us in the Holy Spirit. That is why Jesus would later say, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. And this is what Peter and the other disciples didn't get at the time, was that this vision was for their good. It was to bless them. 
So secondly, in the transfiguration, we see our heavenly blessing. We see the one whom we are to worship. They previewed what many call the beatific vision. And this is the fulfillment of the ironic blessing that we give in what we call a benediction at the end of our services. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. It is another way of saying, may you be in God's favor. The Lord on that day made his face to shine upon Peter, James, and John. And he would remind John later when he sees Jesus and falls flat on his face as though dead. Jesus would lay his right hand on him and say, fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. Fear not. You are blessed to be in the presence of God. Fear not. I have life within my hands, and so now you have life also. The ultimate blessing for the Christian is not tied down to anything in this world, though he does bless us with so much, and we ought to be thankful for it. But the ultimate blessing for the Christian will be the day when we will see The face of God in Jesus. When we see Jesus face to face. That is the ultimate blessing for the Christian. That's what it means to be eternally blessed. It means to have the face of Jesus shine on us. And to be in his favor. Right now it is not seen. But Christians are those who have the light of Christ dwelling within us, uh, though we cannot see it. And this light of Christ dispels darkness, and one day it will be seen. We will one day shine like him, clothed in white garments in his kingdom of light. But until then, we have the spirit of Christ that guides us, as the psalmist would say, as this would one day be fulfilled in Christ, blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face. And quoting the ironic blessing again, he says, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Because thirdly, In the transfiguration, we are given direction. As they were in the light of Christ, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, and he said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Since this occasion is the first reference to Christ's return, God is saying, Listen to him until then. Because we are now called to live in light of his coming. We are to live in light of what he is doing within us. As he is transforming us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. And what is 
one of the means that he uses. The word of God. The word of Christ. Listen to him. It's not just about doing moral things. But it is to listen to Christ in everything. Listen to him. When he speaks about who he is. And about his father. Listen to him. When he calls you to worship him. Listen to him. When he speaks of your condition as a sinner. Listen to him. When he grants you forgiveness and pardon. And gives his spirit to you. Listen to him when he speaks of how you are to live. Now that you are forgiven and freed from the bondage of sin. Trust and receive the words of Christ. For it is through these means. That we are called to be transformed by the renewal of our minds. Testing to discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. That is what the light of Christ is for. That is what it means to have the light of Christ within us. So the question is, what are we doing with the light that has already been given to us? Amen.